All right. Hey, uh, open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And I mentioned the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. And Luke was sitting right over there, and he said, again? The same verse again? I said, yep, week three. And this will be the last time we're in this passage. And the reason uh, we're doing this is because it's such a rich passage, first of all. Um, the first week, we kind of went through it and, and looked at each phrase by phrase and exposited it and applied it to the life of our church. The second week, which was last week, we looked at it from kind of the big helicopter view picture, the, the work of God's grace in the world and how He's glorifying Himself in the redemption of sinners, uh, the glorious reality of how God saves sinners for His glory and how He saved Paul to display the glory of his patience, we saw in verse 16. Well, this week, I want to be a little more street level, practical maybe. I want us to look at this passage and use it like a mirror. Uh, I want you to use this uh, sermon to take this text and then to hold it up to yourself, maybe later, maybe in a small group, maybe with someone you're discipling, and, and read it, and maybe just by yourself, you go back and review it, and, and reflect on what we're going to talk about, because I hope that this is going to give us a picture of what a life marked by grace looks like. If your life is marked by the grace of God, it will take a certain shape. And, and Paul who's writing to Timothy, I'll remind you, he's writing to Timothy, who's in a situation where he's caring for a church, the church isn't very healthy, Timothy needs to stay, he needs to teach, he needs to clarify the gospel, Paul is encouraging him, remain there, deal with the difficult people, make sure you're promoting the gospel, promoting the health of the church, and if Timothy were to feel a little discouraged that such uh, things were happening in his very own church. Even the elders of his own church there were probably off the rails and probably teaching some false doctrine. Um, Timothy might have needed some encouragement. And so to encourage him, Paul tells of his own conversion. Almost like if you forgot what the gospel can do to a person, let, you, let me remind you what it did to me. Let me show you how my life changed. Let me show you who I was and what I am now and how Jesus changed me. We talked about this in the first couple of weeks. And now I want us to think about ourselves. Are we a grace-shaped congregation? Are we shaped by the grace of God? Are we people who have come to understand that we have nothing in our hands to bring to the Lord? We have nothing that we can earn or merit. Are we people who, in our humility, in our abasement, have recognized what the law has said, the law has declared that God is holy and we cannot meet His standard? Have we gotten to the point where we're beggars, we're poor, to then find that the grace of God has reached down into the very gutters that we have found ourselves in to lift us up and to clean us up and to give us new life and to give us the riches of His Son? And have we gotten there? Many of us, though, we know the gospel and we understand the gospel and we could even explain the gospel, often live day to day as if we're still under the law. Uh, we're not always shaped by the grace of God. Uh, we understand it, we could articulate it, but we're still living each day as if we need to earn God's favor. We're still living each day as if we have it within ourselves to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. We have inward strength, we think. We just need to do it the American way, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, make it work, fix ourselves. And there's a whole mindset and lifestyle that comes alongside with that way of living and thinking. And so I'm going to challenge us to evaluate our lives. Are we marked by grace or are we still living as if we're under law? Are we still living as if we're working for God's acceptance? We're working for God's approval? Are we at the point where we can say like John Newton said, a man shaped by grace, the guy who wrote the song, Amazing Grace. He said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am.
To be able to say that about your past, to be able to say that with hope about your future, even confidently, the Lord made me who He made me by His grace, it takes an understanding of the grace of God. And so it's with this in mind that I want to bring you again to our text, and we're going to read this, and then we're going to identify seven ways the grace of God shapes us. This certainly isn't an exhaustive list. We're going to have to fly by them in some ways, kind of fast, and, but it's uh, a starting point. It hopefully will whet your appetite for further discussion, maybe around the dinner table or maybe in your own personal devotions to pray through these things. Let's read again the text, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, reading to verse 17. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to look at seven ways, observing from the text what Paul is like. And we have uh, a call to do this because Paul has said in numerous places, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we're going to look at Paul and we're going to try to learn from him how the grace of God has shaped him. And here's our first way that we are marked by grace, or if we're marked by grace, here's the first way it demonstrates itself in this, number one, that we are thankful to Christ. The very first words out of Paul's mouth or from Paul's pen as he writes to Timothy to describe his conversion. It's almost as if he can't go back to those moments. He can't go back to those days of the past where he was uh, outside the grace of God and then experienced the grace of God and then was called into ministry. He can't think of those things in his mind without exploding into thankfulness. Thank. He thanks the Lord. I thank him. This is the first thing off his tongue. Paul has seen amazing changes in his life. He was given strength to serve. He was appointed to the service. The Lord judged him faithful. None of this is because he deserved it. He goes back to say what he was like. He was not appointed to service. He was not strengthened because he somehow earned it or somehow was the type of person that Jesus wanted to save. Something in Paul that wasn't the reason he was saved. It was solely outside of himself. It was Jesus who did it. And so he's thankful. See, people who are driven still by the law, still thinking that the way you approach God is by the works of your own hands, they tend to not be very thankful people, right? You know why? It's because when we are walking in the law, seeking to appease God or even please God by the works of our hands, whatever we accomplish we can take credit for. We don't have to say thank you for the things we've done. If we're thinking that we have to do this on our own, in our strength, and then we happen to do it, we don't say thank you. We just say, good job me. I actually did a pretty good job here. Uh, Those who are driven by grace are those who are saying, none of this is me. None of this is what I accomplished. I didn't earn any of this. It was grace. It was undeserved love, the love of God given to the undeserving sinner. If we're under the law, we are going to take credit for every advance we make, every step forward we take, because we're going to say, it's not him, it's me. See, friends, the gospel, let's just pause to clarify what the gospel is. We need to do this again and again and again. The gospel is good news, and the good news starts that God has done everything needed for salvation. He has done it all. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life, perfect in its righteousness. He then went to the cross to die there in payment for the sins of His people so that whoever trusts in Him 
will be given the righteousness of Christ fully and completely, and all their sins will be given to Him and paid for in full, so that the believer is totally and utterly, completely covered in perfect righteousness, and all their guilt is removed from them, and they are saved entirely. Jesus is alive, He's risen from the dead, and this salvation is given in full to anyone who trusts Him, not to people who try to earn it. It is to the people who stop trying to work for it. It is to the people who are in the gutter and they recognize they can't get out on their own. It's for the people who realize they can't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's for those people. And it's those people who Jesus saves. And when they get saved, they come out on the other side in the, in the world of grace. And they're saying, thank you. Thank you. Thankfulness implies it's something outside of you. Let me ask you. Are you thankful? The holidays just around the corner, so this very week, you'll gather around tables, you'll share meals, you'll see old friends and old family members, and maybe you'll even reflect for a moment what you are thankful for. What are you thankful for? And there are many things we could say that are good things, you know, many things that, you, that come to mind as you reflect, things like family, things like the blessings of a house to live in, a job that pays the bills, things like that. But in your affections, in your heart, are you thankful for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you? Does, does that rise to the surface as you consider what it means to be thankful? Are you a thankful person, not just generally, but like Paul, is, the grace shapes you by making you thankful because it first convinces you that you have nothing and then it gives you everything. And it makes you thankful. And so if your life is in a minor key, grumbling, complaining, pessimistic, never seeing things through the biblical worldview of hope, but rather through the pessimistic view of everything is falling apart, nothing works, my life stinks. Well, friend, the gospel has enough firepower to turn that grumbling into praise because everything that has ever happened to you Every painful thing you've ever gone through, every sorrow you've ever faced, every time you've spent in the hospital, every relational discord you've ever experienced, God is for His glory and for your good because of the gospel, not because you deserve it, because of His overflowing generosity, is leveraging those things for your good, His child. And so whatever it is, you can say, thank you. I thank you, and this is what was in the heart of Paul. Thank you. And if you think Paul had an easy life, go read 2 Corinthians 11. Any of you guys spend a few nights in the sea? <laughs> I never have. Been whipped? I never have. And yet he considered it all his joy to serve his Lord. Secondly, another mark of grace in the life of a person who's been saved. Again, use this as a mirror for your own self. The mark of grace is that they're empowered by Christ. First, we saw that they're thankful to Christ. Here we also are going to see that people marked by grace are empowered by Christ. I hopefully have been emphasizing over the last few weeks when we talk about grace is that grace is not merely something that forgives your sin. It is. It does that. The grace of God, His overflowing love, it washes away sin. It is a forgiving agent. It is something that we rejoice in that our sins are forgiven, but that's not all that grace does. Grace is all of the energy of God's divine love being poured upon you who don't deserve it. And therefore, it is transformative. It is transformative. It does change people. And this is what Paul is making very clear. It changed him. And so he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord names his very name. Christ Jesus is the one who gave me strength and I am thanking him. You know you've been marked by grace when not to your own credit, 
Not that you look within and you say, wow, look at me, I'm pretty great. But you notice within yourself because of what Jesus has done, a spiritual strength, a spiritual vitality, a spiritual energy to labor for God's cause in the world. You see that welling within you, just like Paul, who said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, who what? Strengthens me. Now, he didn't mean, contrary to the athletes of our world, that he could hit more home runs, score more touchdowns, and make all his free throws. All of us athletes like to put Philippians 4.13 as our life verse. This is not what Paul's talking about. He's saying there's spiritual fortitude in Christ. That whether he is high or whether he is low, whether he is in difficulty, whether he's rejoicing, whether he has accusations flying against him, whether he's in pain or whether he's not, he can do it all through Christ. Why? Because Christ strengthens him. The grace of God is not merely forgiveness of sins. It's strength. It's power. It's energy to live for God in the world. He gives that to His children. And you have access to that. Was it hard to get up and come to church this morning? Sometimes it is. In a broken, fallen world, it can be hard to get up and come to church with all the things that are going on in life, with all the difficulties that are around us each and every day. And isn't it a joy that even when we're not feeling as excited about the things of the Lord as we should, that God's grace toward us is such that He is willing to stoop to our level to even strengthen us to do the things we feel incapable of doing, to do the things we feel unqualified to do. We might have said this morning, what use is it for me to show up? What use is it for me to go serve anyone? I hardly feel put together myself. And Paul is referring to a strength that doesn't come from within himself, but comes from Christ. And it's given on the basis of grace, not on the basis of you deserving it. And so you have access to this empowering, strengthening grace all the time. So that if you felt unable or unwilling or useless this morning, you can come to his throne room and say, I'm weak. I'm in need. I need grace. Strengthen me by your grace. And he will. Because it's not given on the basis of you deserving it or not. That's not what grace is. If you had to earn grace, it wouldn't be grace. He gives to his children who are needy. Call upon him when you're needy. Give him the credit that's due his name. Is he able to sustain you? Yes. Is his infinite power enough to give you the energy you need to serve another day? To get through another hour? Yes. Jerry Bridges, in a book called Transforming Grace, has this great illustration that I'm just going to steal. And uh, he tells this illustration about being bankrupt. And uh, he, he, he says, in the very beginning, he says, we're all spiritually bankrupt. He doesn't even try to make a case for it. He just, uh, you're spiritually bankrupt. You just need to admit it. We're all spiritually bankrupt. We have to come to the end of ourselves. This is what a Christian is. We are bankrupt. But then he goes on to describe that in business, there are different kinds of bankruptcies. Now, I might butcher this because I'm not butcher this. I'm not a businessman. But he says there's two kinds of bankruptcies. There's a chapter seven bankruptcy, and there's a chapter eleven bankruptcy. Chapter eleven bankruptcy is a kind of temporary bankruptcy. Your business is in trouble. You need something dramatic to be done to get you back on the right path. You call chapter eleven bankruptcy. You go on a temporary uh, hiatus from all matters of business, hopefully for the purpose of being brought back to a functioning place as a business. The other type of a bankruptcy is a chapter 7. It's the more permanent. This is shut it down. This is sell all your stuff, liquidate all the assets, close the doors, done and done. That's a chapter 7 bankruptcy. In describing the Christian life, he says all of us need to come to a point of bankruptcy. But then he asks, well, which kind of bankruptcy did you declare? I think it's a good question. Did you declare? I, I know when you came to Christ, you said you're bankrupt. That's why you reached out to Jesus. But was it just this temporary thing? <laughs> You needed him for salvation, but you think every other day you need to just do it on your own? You needed him in coming to the Lord. You needed him to get your sins forgiven. But what about the times at work that are hard? What about the times in the morning when you just have a hard time getting out of bed? What about those times? 
as parents when just life is hard raising your kids and you're going through it? What about those times? Are you actually saying that you're bankrupt in those times too? Or are you actually trying to just do it all on your own? And so often, we are the people who declared a temporary bankruptcy in, in that this. We asked the Lord to save us. We came to God by His grace. And then we began to live our Christian lives as if there was no more grace left. And each day, we thought we had to do it on our own. We had to obey all, by the grit of our teeth. We had to, we had to just do it ourselves. Listen, Paul speaks of empowering grace, strength given him by Jesus. Grace says you are needy, you are desperately needy, and at the same time, it says you are lavishly provided for every day. Tomorrow morning, next week, anything you face in this life, daily grace, daily strength, like Paul, you can say, I can do it all through Christ who gives me strength. And you can. Do you have that mark of grace? A growing confidence that He will strengthen you? Or do you tend to sink toward hopelessness and despair? Because you've forgotten that in the very moment where you feel your deepest need, Christ is willing to strengthen you. Here's a third mark of grace. Uh, he's unbound by his past. Paul is unbound by his past. Look at how he describes, he says that he thanks the Lord for the strength because he was appointed to the service of Christ. Verse 13, look at this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. He goes on to say that he was ignorant in his unbelief. If you're living by the law, if you're living in obedience not to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who is tender and gentle and gracious. Instead, you're living under the law, trying to earn it yourself, trying to do it by your own strength. You're going to be dominated by your past. You're going to be dominated by your sin struggles. You are not going to be able to talk about them freely. You're going to try to hide them. Because, listen, your mindset is still that which says, I need to earn acceptance from God and from people. And therefore, if I'm going to have your acceptance, I'm going to put on the best show I can. And I'm going to do my best to impress you. Which means, I will not tell anything about what I'm going through, struggling with, currently or in my past, that would cause you to think lower of me. I'm going to hide that. When we're living according to this law, we are earning acceptance. We're trying to earn God's favor. We're trying to earn the favor of the people around us. And so we don't want people in our lives. If that's the case, if that's what we're doing, we're going to be people who have very closed up lives. Very, very tightly knit lives with only the few who actually know us. We will not share what we're going through with any other people. And sadly, because of this, because people are walking in life through the life this way, they're dominated by their past, they're haunted by it, it controls them. They will not have certain open relationships with people because they're afraid that people might actually get to know them. They're always trying to put on something to promote their own either self-righteousness or whatever personification they want to present to everyone else, they'll put that on. But grace does something dramatically different. Grace says, you can come out of the dark. Grace says, I love you before you deserved it. Grace says, you didn't earn anything in the first place, so come out and talk about who you are honestly. See, there's a great cost to always wearing a mask. There's a great cost. If you're a person this morning that's, marked by, that's not marked by grace, that you just have a hard time really talking about who you are and really talking about what you're going through, just you don't want people to know about it, you want everyone to think your family has everything together, that you got everything together, if, if that's who you are, there's going to there's gonna be a great cost that you're going to have to pay. And I don't want you to have to pay, and this is why we talk about these things, but the cost will be that no one will really know you. 
And so you'll never feel truly loved. Because how can you love someone that you don't know? And maybe because you never feel truly loved, you'll never feel accepted, you'll never feel welcomed, and you'll feel like you're ostracized. It's a great cost to pay. But the grace of God, which says, God says, I love you first, and the result of my love is that you love me. He loves us first. He gives us grace before we deserved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is His grace that calls us out of the dark and says, because you are in the love of God, you can be honest about who you are without fear of rejection. And that's the way God treats us. And listen, that's the way we ought to treat each other. And so, if you really understand grace, you're going to have open relationships. We've started growth groups in the last couple of weeks. I think the deeper we go with the grace of God in our own lives, the deeper we understand this, experience the full embrace of the Father through Christ, we'll throw away our masks of morality, our robes of righteousness, we'll stop trying to persuade everyone of how good we are, and we'll finally have that awesome experience of being fully known and fully loved. Not perfectly yet in the church. That won't happen until glory. But fully known in that people love us and they, or they know us for who we are, and then embraced. And so let me ask, if the grace of God it covers sin, if, if the grace of God means you're no longer identified by your past, if the grace of God sa- says these things and communicates things to us, why are you hiding? Is there something that you feel that you don't want anyone to know about? Let me invite you in in the grace of God to come out from the dark and be free. You could talk about these things. Find rest in the grace of God. Open your life. Paul was unbound by his past. He could talk openly about his most heinous sins because he was confident in his Lord. And this is our next point, our fourth point here, is assurance. A person marked by grace is marked by assurance. If you have tasted the grace of God, there's a level of assurance that you have. I want just to draw your attention to the way Paul talks about the mercy and the grace of God. I thank Him who has given me. There's a past tense. This thing has happened already. He judged me faithful. He appointed me to His service. Look at halfway through verse 13. But I received mercy. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord Lord overflowed for me. Uh, Look at verse 16. But I received mercy. He's utterly confident that this has all happened. There is no doubt in his mind that he has received mercy, that grace has overflowed for him, that he has been strengthened, that he has been loved by God. He has zero doubt. He is totally confident. There's so much certainty in his standing with God. He's not questioning it. He's not a child hoping that daddy loves him. He's not that kind of kid that's always wondering, am I doing enough to impress my father so that he cares about me? He's, he's so utterly sure of the grace of God in his life. And let me ask you, did you know that's possible for you? I don't know where you stand, but I know that throughout the history of the church and throughout my experience in ministry in the church, there are people who genuinely and consistently struggle with their assurance. They don't know if they're saved. And and partially it's because of bad teaching. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church for thousands of years to this very day teaches that you can never know for sure that you're going to heaven when when you die. You can't know for sure. You'll be called a heretic if you claim to have absolute assurance of your salvation. This is partially why, quick history lesson, when the Protestant Reformation was happening in the 1500s and the preachers were preaching, you can know, (laughs) you can know that you can die tonight, lay your head on your pillow, and then go to heaven. Now, you won't have to spend 10,000 years in purgatory paying it all off one day at a time. You won't have to die in uncertainty and fear. He's saying, you can know. 
Do you know that's possible? Do you know that? And let me ask, do you have that assurance? 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. If you want assurance, read the entire book of 1 John. Uh, this book was written, listen to the purpose statement of the book of 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. The Puritans and the Reformers called the, the heresy... They call the, 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 the idea that you had to always remain in doubt. That some people taught that you always had to remain in doubt, that you could never know for sure. The, the Reformers and the Puritan called it the damnable doctrine of doubt. And it was the way that the church manipulated people into obedience by making them always afraid they haven't done enough. And so what they do? They do more. They do a little more. They try a little more just so they can feel like maybe they've done enough to earn salvation. Do you have assurance? Do you know for sure? Do you know that you could lay your head at night down on that pillow and rest? This week has been a kind of a difficult week for Ashley's side of the family, for our side uh, as well. Um, last night, Ashley's grandfather went to be with the Lord. And a few nights ago, uh, Ashley's grandma they were married for tons of years. We were told that she was probably going to pass in this next week. And we had this opportunity. The doctor said we might not be able to talk to them again. So Ash and I ran over there. And we got into the, the room with them. And we are just talking. And it's amazing. This woman has followed the Lord for so many years. So faithful. A tremendous example for all of us. And, and I got to ask her this question. And I asked her, what are you most excited about in heaven? She didn't skip a beat. She said, I want to see Jesus' face. She said, Jesus' face full of forgiveness. That's what she said. First thing, she didn't hesitate. And I thought to myself, now that's assurance. She has no doubt. The Lord has been gracious to her. She's walked with the Lord for all these years. And she has no doubt as she lies on this medical hospital bed and there's beepings and buzzings and machines all around her and she knows she only has a few days left and she says, I can't wait to see the face of my Lord. I can't wait. There's an assurance. You don't want to be on that bed without assurance. You don't want to come to the end of your life and have no idea what's going to happen to you. And so that begins now, friends. Do you know? Do you know for sure? This is so precious. Just rejoice that you can know right now. Yes, He is mine. Like Paul said, I'm not ashamed for I know who I have believed and I can, am convinced that He is able to guard it until that day what has been entrusted to me. See, many Christians are living like children who are wondering if daddy's ever going to come home. What kind of father would say to his children, no, hey, children, I'm going to work. I might come home tonight. I might not. You better obey mommy. Make sure you obey enough. And if you do good enough, I might come back. And yet sometimes that's what we're living like. As if we're somehow earning God's favor by being good and it'll drive you crazy. It'll drive you mad trying to do enough to earn the favor of God. And he wants you to know as his precious child, you are loved, you are graced, you have been mercied, you have assurance, believe in Christ and know and rest. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, Christians are people who are in a state of certainty. The very definition of Christians in the New Testament is of people who know where they are, what they are, and what they have got, and that they are not men and women who are hovering in the dark. Do you know? Grace says you can know. If it's by works, you're always going to wonder if you've done enough. And you'll never know. But grace says you can know now with confidence that you have been graced by God and that He loves you eternally. And if you get that, listen, it'll launch your life into love of Him and service of others. In fact, I don't know that you'll ever really be able to give yourself to the work of the gospel until you have assurance. I don't know if you're willing to risk everything if you're not sure you'll ever get anything back. 
I don't know if we're willing to lay down our lives if we're not sure of a resurrection. I'm not sure we're willing to be generous if we're not sure that the riches that God has given to us in Christ are really ours. I think we're always going to be wondering, we're always going to be hesitating if we're not sure of our salvation. So let me ask you again, are you sure? Are you sure? Have you been marked by grace? Grace says, yes, I'm sure. Here's a fifth mark. Humility. Humility. As much as Paul is so confident of his salvation, there's no pride there. Because right there, he says in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. There's a humility there. I, I love this. See, if you're, if you're under the law, if you are living under the law, here's one way you'll know it. Here's one way you'll know it. You'll either be puffed up in self-righteous pride because you'll be proud of your ability to keep the law, or, on the other hand, you will be driven to depression and despair because you'll know you can never live up to the law. If you evaluate your life and you watch yourself go from pole to pole, self-righteous pride, look at me, I'm doing a great job, or to the other side, depression and despair, oh, woe is me, I could never do what God called me to do. It's showing that you're living under the law, not under grace. See, grace, it kills your pride because it begins by saying you don't have anything that you need. You have nothing. You can't have, you don't have any power within and of yourself to change yourself, to save yourself. You have nothing. So it kills your pride. But it also kills your hopelessness, doesn't it? Doesn't grace destroy your despair? Because where it says you have nothing, it also says I give you everything. I give you all that you need. So people in our world, usually if they're confident, they're self-confident. We, we know people who are confident, and typically in, in our society, if you know a confident person, usually they're confident because they take pride in themselves, they take pride in their abilities, they take pride in what they feel like they can do in the world, but they lack humility. And sometimes you get people who are humble, but it's more a woe is me type humility. I can't do anything for the Lord. I don't have any gifts. I can't serve. I'm useless. Despair, depression are the result of that. But Paul's neither. So the world understands that kind of cocky confidence because that's happening all the time. The world understands that kind of despair and depression because that's happening all the time. But what the world doesn't have a category for is those types of people who are utterly confident in who they are, what God has given them, and what God has called them to do and be in the world, who at the same time are the lowest of the low in terms of their humility who are so low, they have no high view of themselves, and yet they're super confident. How can you be that person? It's by grace. It's by understanding grace. Paul's confident not because he has a high view of himself. Why is he confident? Because he has a high view of Christ. He has a very low view of himself. He's the chief of sinners. But he has a very high view of Christ. And so he is, he is not driven to despair over his emptiness, he knows his emptiness. That's obvious to him. I have nothing, he would say. I'm the chief of sinners. And yet, he looks to Christ and says, but look at who he is. That gives me confidence. If you've been graced, if you've truly experienced the grace of God, you can have a true biblical humility that doesn't mope around that doesn't give itself always to despair and depression. Woe is me, I am worthless, I can do nothing. It's a kind of humility that just doesn't think too much about oneself to begin with because it's so busy fixating on Christ and his perfections and his strengths. And so this humility is Christ-centered humility. Maybe in church you've, you've thought this or maybe you've even said this or maybe you've even done this. You've said, well, yeah, there's all kinds of needs in the church and all kinds of people. I'm just not sure I have anything to offer. Maybe other people should do that. I'm just not sure I have anything to offer. And that could sound like humility. But actually, it's living still under the law as if what we are able to do is dependent on our ability to follow certain standards. 
Grace says, yes, I have nothing to offer in myself, but Christ is infinitely glorious. I know him, and I'm going to just be obedient. I'm going to love the way I can. Yeah, I can't offer anyone anything, but I believe Christ has strengthened me. I believe the Holy Spirit uses me. I believe I'm called to obedience, and so I'm going to go serve in the church in whatever way God allows me to serve. All of us have something to offer if we're in Christ. (laughs) If we're outside of Christ, we can't really contribute to the building up of the body. But all of us in Christ by the Spirit, because of the way He's gifted us, because of His empowering and strengthening grace, we have something to offer. And so we offer in humility knowing that it doesn't originate with us. Friends, I hope we are marked by a humility in this church. A humility that is confident in Christ, but we just don't take ourselves too seriously. We just have a pretty low view on what human people with human limitations can accomplish. We just understand biblically that from within we can't do anything of any eternal value. The Spirit must do that. And so we're just humble about that. And in our humility, we look to the one who does this stuff. We look to His Word to change lives. We hope in His Spirit to change hearts. We trust Him to act. So we're humble if we're marked by grace. Sixth, these last two go kind of quick. Sixth, we're Christ-centered. How often does Paul mention Jesus in these verses? He thanks Christ Jesus He talks about what Christ has done for him. He talks about his grace. He talks about his mercy. He talks about his mission. He talks about how he saves sinners. He talks about how he's displaying his patience. All of this is about Christ. Paul would say in another place, to live is Christ. Life is about Jesus Christ. Your life ought to be about Jesus Christ. This is what the grace of God does for us. Life is for him. Often we do the opposite, don't we? We start with ourself, our desires, our passions, the career we want. We start with these possessions we want. Uh, We budget so that we could get the things we want. And then in the margin of our lives, we try to fit Jesus in. I'm going to do all that I want to do. I'm going to formulate my life first. And then where does Jesus fit into my career? Where does Jesus fit into my job? Where does he fit into my family? I've already done all these other things first, and that's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to try to make sure Jesus fits in. But that's backwards, isn't it? To live is Christ. Every day is for Christ. You exist for this vapor of a life for Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. It's for Him. It's not for us. Ultimately, it's for His glory. And so ask yourself, if you have a family, evaluate yourself in the family that you're leading. If you're the leader of the family, if you're part of this family, evaluate yourself. Are you Christ-centered? What is the decisive commitment of your life that's immovable and unshakable, they're in the middle that everything else has to move around to work. I hope it is Jesus serving Him, serving Him in the way He's called me to, which is in His church, in this community for His glory. That is a non-negotiable. I will do that now. I want to find a career that enables me to do that well. I want to find a place to live that enables me to do that well. I want to organize my life and my budget and able to do that well. That is the non-negotiable commitment, the Everest that stands unmoved in our lives that we do not move. Everything else revolves around that. That's what it means to be Christ-centered, and that's what Paul is. It's all about him. His very own salvation, he doesn't even say it's about him. My own salvation, he says, was about Jesus displaying the glory of his patience as an example for those who were to believe. So are you Christ-centered, or are you trying to fit him into the margin of your life? Is he the point of all of your decisions, or do you make decisions and then try to figure out how Jesus can be the point. 
The universe is Christ-centered. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The church ought to be Christ-centered now, before that day comes. And so each one of us ought to evaluate ourselves and say, am I a Christ-centered person? Is my family Christ-centered? Am I helping this church be Christ-centered? Lastly, here's our last mark of grace. We will be experiencing this is in the degree that we understand the grace of God, we will have Godward worship or God-centered worship. When Paul, reciting his conversion, comes to the end, he can't help but break into a God-centered doxology. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He breaks out into praise of God. His life is praise to God. His heart swells with wonder and love and praise in reflection of the gospel. It doesn't turn him inward and think, wow, how great am I? It turns him outward and say, God is glorious. He really is. This is who he is. And so he praises him. He has a profound concern for God's glory, which is evident in all the ways he serves the church and all the letters he's written that are in the New Testament. Paul is concerned for the glory of God more than anything else. That's what drives him. He, he loves the glory of God. We've got a lot of people in the world who have a profound concern for politics. A lot of parents in the world have a profound concern for their kids' education or their kids' opportunities. We have plenty of workers in the world who have a profound concern for their job and for their career, and they should be concerned to a degree about these things. Those are not bad things. I'm not in any way saying that. But Paul, in his life, demonstrated a profound concern for the glory of God. We need more people in our world, in this community, in our church, whose driving concern, the thing that wakes them up in the morning or keeps them up at night, is that God is so glorious, He needs to be glorified. And I can't rest insofar as there are people who are living as if He's not glorious. I need to act and live so that God gets recognized to be who the person He really is. This is what the world needs more than anyone else. People who are shaped by a profound concern for the glory of God. People care about sports, that's fine. People care about tests and getting grades and making money and traveling the world and those are all good and fine and people care about all those things and they care about those things passionately. I hope that we are a church that cares about God most profoundly, most deeply, is that we long to see God's name hallowed in the earth. His name be glorified. That all the nations would know His glory. That we would be a people who understand how great He has been toward us and so we want others to know that same greatness. It makes sense that the church should be that place, right? With the people here, we, we care about God. That's obvious, right? What that means for us is the way we think about shaping our church. We're not going to shape it according to the felt needs of a culture. We're not going to go with the fads and the trends of passing society. We're going to try to organize everything we do as a corporate gathering of believers to fixate on God what He has done, what He has said in His Word, and what He calls His people to do. And so all of this is to be God-centric, Godward, focused on Him, not on us. This should be the one place you walk in on your week, and it's, it's not all about us. We look outside ourselves, and we see the profound glory of God. And in seeing that, we're humbled, we're amazed, we're rejuvenated, we're strengthened, we're encouraged. And in seeing who God is, we are then invigorated for a life of serving Him. Friends, grace forgives, but do not forget, it transforms. It will utterly transform your life. 
It'll change those who are grumpy into those who are thankful. It'll change those who are weak and despairing in their weakness to people who can be strong in the strength that God provides. It'll change those who are haunted by their pasts, ashamed of their sin, to come out from the dark and be free and talk about their lives and talk about their issues. The trembling, fearful souls who always wonder if God loves them, grace will tell them that they are loved and they can have assurance. The proud are humbled. The me-centered, which our culture reproduces and reproduces and reproduces, will become Christ-centered by the grace of God. And we who are so often focused on our own little trivial lives will be moved upward to have a profound sense of the glory of God and a deep longing for His name to be magnified. And that will become their chief aim. May that be our church. Amen? May that be our church. And so we'll finish again with this question. Have you been shaped by grace? Are you still walking as if you're under the law, trying to earn God's favor, trying to do enough of your own, uh, pulling yourself up and making it happen and fixing it yourself, that you've forgotten that grace is something you walk in every moment of every day until you get to heaven where it's poured out eternally on you for the rest of your glorious existence. Let's pray. So Lord, I hope this helps us again be reminded of the wonder of your grace. Uh, Lord, if we have grown dull or so familiar with your grace, I pray that we would be provoked to more love and, Lord, more passion and more commitment. Lord, if we've been distracted, I pray that this would focus us on you. If we've been fearful, I pray that this would give us assurance. If we've been proud, I pray that this would humble us. Lord, I pray that each individual would be personally touched by your grace this morning to give them the need that they need. And so, Lord, uh, we ask this ultimately because you deserve it. You deserve the glory. We pray that you would change us to be a people who glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.